It's Amy's Table, a girl's guide to living with Amy Tobin on Q102. Pull up a chair and join us. Recently, we had the Kentucky's Edge Bourbon Festival here in the greater Cincinnati area, and that's where I learned about Bob Batchelor. Bob is a critically acclaimed cultural historian and biography, and he's published books on Stan Lee, Bob Dylan, The Great Gatsby, Mad Men, and John Updike. Bob earned his doctorate in English literature from the University of South Florida, and he teaches in the media, journalism, and film department at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. His books have been translated into a dozen languages, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, as well as the National Geographic Channel, PBS NewsHour, and NPR. And he's joining me today on Amy's Table to talk about his latest book, The Bourbon King. And Bob, your timing couldn't be better, could it? I mean, we are in a bourbon renaissance. Exactly, Amy. It's, it is a bourbon renaissance today, and The Bourbon King explores a really little-known facet of bourbon history that I think people around the world should really understand. It's the rollicking story of George Remus, whose life is bigger than you can imagine. Um, He was the biggest bootlegger in America and headquartered in Cincinnati. So it's a very interesting story, and that's just the tiniest slice. It's amazing. In fact, what did one of the critics say that this book sounded like the outline of a Netflix series? Exactly. People, when <laughs> Fingers crossed, Bob. <laughs> right. When, when readers um, come up to me, they kind of whisper to me and they say, hey, Bob, you, you made this up, didn't you? And I'm, no, this is all true. Remus's life was gigantic. It was forced Gumpian in a way. But all bad stuff instead of good stuff. I mean, that's the thing. What is the byline of, of the, the book? Um, I mean, he was a bad whamajama. <laughs> yes, he was an evil guy. Yeah. So he he did all this bootlegging here in Cincinnati. Um, some local landmarks that still, you know, are reminiscent of him. I mean, where was he? Certainly. The unfortunate thing that his mansion got torn down in 1934, which was a money laundering scheme orchestrated by Remus. But if people are familiar with Cincinnati or visit to Cincinnati, you've been to Eden Park. It was like Cincinnati's Central Park. And that's where George kills his wife, Imogene, in broad daylight on a beautiful October morning. And lots of people saw it. And what that did if Remus wasn't already famous enough for being the bootleg king of America, it set off the really one of the most sensational trials of the 1920s. And it happened right here in Cincinnati. There were hundreds of newspaper reporters that flocked to the city, thousands of gangsters and thugs. I just saw yesterday, I posted it on Facebook, there were so many thugs that showed up in Cincinnati, it drove the price of illegal liquor up in the city <laughs> during that time. So, classic supply and demand. And that was probably one of his evil plans as well. Why did he kill his wife? Well, she drove him crazy. And <laughs> he would he would say that he was actually crazy. But what happened, and this is the most interesting twist in the entire book, Remus, like most thugs, couldn't stop running his mouth. He eventually got on the wrong side of the Taft family, which is royalty in Cincinnati. Yeah. And they put the Prohibition Bureau on him. So eventually, after about two and a half years, Remus gets caught and he gets uh, convicted and thrown into the Big A, which was the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. 
considered like hell on earth being down there. While he is in the Big A, his wife runs off with one of the federal prohibition agents named Franklin (laughs) Dodge, who had helped put him there. And so Dodge knew exactly how much money Remus had and how much imaging, because he signed over power of attorney, how much she now controlled, hidden away tens of millions of dollars all over Cincinnati and the Midwest. So did Imogene and her new lover enjoy this money? Did they use it? They sure did. There are, you can't track, it's very difficult to track people from the 1920s, but you can kind of figure out where they were. They were putting a lot of money into New Florida resorts. They were taking money into Canada. They were staying at the finest hotels all over the Northeast and the Midwest. They lived it up. She bought him six or seven cars. Oh she, my God. Yeah, they Emma lived. Jean, you were yeah. asking for it. <laughs> she lived. I mean, really, that was risky business that she was doing. Yeah. She, Did she think he wouldn't get out? No, she knew he would get out, but she kept escalating things. So Imogene is like the classic femme fatale from a film noir. Wonderful. And she alone could be a great movie. She knew he was getting out. But I think she realized there or thought that she could manipulate him into not being the violent criminal that he became. But she learned the lesson the hard way. While he was out, they each, each side, Franklin and Imogene on one side, George on the other, they were hiring some of the biggest murderers and thugs in some of the largest gangs in America to, to assassinate each other. And... Fortunately or unfortunately, they become such media celebrities that these gangs wouldn't kill them. It would draw too much heat. And so they they went on living, and then that fateful morning in October of 1927. If you were a casting agent, who would you have play Imogene? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm not sure. She was not... Or George, either one. I mean... See, now, here's the problem with that. (laughs) If I tell you... Right now, over the air, who I think should play George, that may make several people in Hollywood very upset. Okay, I won't say so a word. But I can't know, tell you that. I'll tell you what I want you to do. I <laughs> want you to contact Emilio Estevez, who lives here now, and talk with the um, Cincinnati Northern Kentucky Film Commission exactly. and get this movie made. Yeah, there there is interest because Remus is a fascinating character. Yes. And he showed up a couple times in popular culture. He was in the Ken Burns documentary on Prohibition. A lot of that was wrong or, or slightly off just because they didn't have the research capabilities that we have now. He also showed up in Boardwalk Empire. That characterization was completely wrong. Everything about Remus was wrong in that film or that series, except the fact that he was from Cincinnati. Isn't that funny? Yeah, Remus would have actually been the strong man in that room and the most powerful. Interesting. Well, you know, you and I talked um, about the book at another time, and one of the things that you said that I thought was so interesting is he was really a bad guy, for sure. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I, if you, you conveyed this or I remember this, but I think it was inadvertently he might have saved the bourbon industry you may i can't remember if you thought it was purposefully or not but that's in the book as i was researching the book you know the the distilleries today they all look away from their 1920s history and and as a historian and particularly somebody who loves public history i think they should embrace that 
uh, but they don't. They run from it. And it's a, it's 100 years later. Nobody cares. We just want to know the history at this point. Right. You know, give right. us the documents. So as I'm researching the Bourbon King, it becomes really clear that what Remus did in a weird offhanded way by gobbling up the distilleries all up and down what we now call uh, the Bourbon Trail is that he gave a foundation to those operations that almost served as a gap during Prohibition. So that was a long 13 years. Yeah. And at least people were still working. Now, they were on a legal payroll. Sometimes Remus went in and just cleared the place out, but other times he kept the operations running. So he gave it a foundation. And then once Prohibition is lifted, large liquor operations came into bourbon country, and they did exactly what Remus had planned. Because his real plan, his real overarching goal was to create a bourbon monopoly and then sell America's Kentucky Dew, you know, the finest bourbon in the world, to Canada and to Europe. But he was too greedy. He was making, in what today's money would easily be, billions and billions of dollars. And so he was so greedy, he couldn't stop and do the thing that he wanted to do because the money was rolling in so fast, he couldn't count it. He couldn't, he couldn't even track it. It really is. I mean, it is the stuff that movies are made of. It is is just incredible. So, how did he end up? What was his, what was the end of his life? One of the things I'm really proud about is in the book. I like when a movie carries a character past the episode in the book. So, I have this kind of you know. I think I first saw it in Animal House, where they carry it on in a funny way. I talk about all the characters in the book. And carry them through so that you know what happened. Because yeah. otherwise, you'd have to spend You're left hanging. Yeah, dozens of hours researching these people. So I already did the research, so I put it in there. Historians thought Remus died destitute in Covington. But they're wrong. He lived a fancy life because he had funneled and laundered hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, through his third wife, if you can believe, Remus got married again. Who would marry him? Oh, my God. One of the most mysterious figures in Cincinnati, northern Kentucky history named Blanche Watson. And she is just a mystery character. She had been Remus's manager. And when he went into jail in Atlanta, she managed his affairs. So she kept the bourbon empire running as well as she could. When he gets out, they get married in the early 1930s. and After he's, he's off Imogene. After he's off Imogene, after all of his legal troubles are done, he can't build his bourbon empire back because he doesn't have the resources to, to really to hire an army, and that's what it would have taken to reclaim his territory. So he goes off with uh, Blanche, and she's, she owns racehorses. And this is the 30s. To own racehorses, you had to have big money. The sad thing for Remus, if there's a sad thing, is he had a stroke in a, around 1950. He was hospitalized, hospitalized for about nine months, and Blanche owned two houses in Covington. They're still there on Greenup Street, 1808 and 1810. He holed up in, I think, 1808, but he had to have a full-time nurse. And compared to the opulence, the Gatsby-like life he had led in the 1920s, these are modest homes. Right. And so people thought, oh, well, he must have died penniless. He wasn't penniless. He was just had these, you know, had to have a round-the-clock nurse, all, all the things that a stroke patient that, that barely survives goes through. Yeah. 
Amazing. I'm going to take a whole new look at those addresses (laughs) now, too. You know, what a fascinating story. I think that when I, you are going to be at New Riff, which I'm very excited about on December 5th from 5 to 7, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, with readings and a talk about the book. You'll also sign for the Bourbon Enthusiast. That's how I started thinking about this, for the (laughs) Bourbon Enthusiast in your life for a holiday gift. But it seems to me it's the history enthusiast it's the local history enthusiast it's the mobster enthusiast i mean there's yeah. so many angles on this um, people love true crime so much today yes. and this book is what i like to think prof- i'm a professional historian i researched it like a professional historian does but i wrote it like the longest screenplay ever and yeah. that was my thinking I don't want the reader to feel the research. I want just at the end for them to say, "Oh my God, that was a great book." They won't even see the research. They did, they'll they'll find it. They won't. It won't be oppressive to them. Right. I know what you're saying. It's it's not like a textbook. It's like no, a novel almost. Yeah. Well, if you were to sum up in I don't know two or three words how you would characterize George Remus after all of this, you know, describing him to someone. Quick description, takeaway uh, of George. Charismatic, evil gangster. Perfect. <laughs> that sounds like it. Again, the book is The Bourbon King, and it's the tale of George Remus. Fascinating, fascinating man. Not a good one, but a fascinating man. Great stuff about our own uh, neighborhood, our own community. And again, Bob Batchelor has written this book. So, Bob, you're going to be at New Riff on December 5th, 5 to 7, signing copies and talking about the book. Great time for people to come and meet Bob and learn more. It's free to the public. But where can people find more information about you? Yeah, I am super easy to find. My The easiest place is my website, which is just my name, bobbatchelor.com. If you want to email me, it's very simple there, bob at bobbatchelor.com. <laughs> I'm all over Twitter. I uh, engage with fans quite a bit. I had, I was at a book signing the other day, and my favorite fan so far, a 75-year-old little grandma comes up to me and says, I read your book. And I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> and uh, she says, a matter of fact, I read it twice because I loved it so much the first time I had to go back and read it again. Aww. And it, it just touched my heart. It was like a Christmassy kind of thing. Yeah. And it was like just a beautiful little moment. But she's my, well, outside my wife, she's yeah. my second favorite reader <laughs> uh, so far. So it's it's been a blast. The, the fans have really loved the book. And that's, as a writer, that's all you want. You that's just want right. feedback because it's a very lonely profession. Yeah, well, I I love it. I love your storytelling skills. They're amazing. And of course, all the other books we should remind people on Stan Lee, Bob Dylan, Great Gatsby, Mad Men, and John Updike. So you can find all of that. And your books are everywhere. Books are sold. Very easy to find. Wherever you like to buy books, you can find them there. Fantastic. Well, Bob Batchelor, thank you so much for joining me on Amy's Table. Thanks. Stick around for another helping from Amy's Table on Q102. Q! Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a 3-in-1 formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine. It keeps you seeing safely all year long. Pick up some at Walmart today. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash.